0: Bible out, get your phone out, your tablet out, reach in front of you, grab yours, whatever you need to do. Find a Bible and find Psalm 119, right in the middle, Psalm 119. For the next four weeks, we're going to camp out in Psalm 119. And camp out, I sort of use tongue-in-cheek because we're not going to do a whole lot of camping. There's 176 verses and we're going to break it down over four weeks. We're still going to have to move really fast, but we are going to spend four Sundays in Psalm 119. There's an outline in your bulletin. If you'd like to follow along on the outline, you can do that. Here's a few things you need to know about Psalm 119 before we read our section this morning. First of all, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, and Bible scholars disagree and debate a little bit about this, but... At least 171 of the 176 verses mention the Word of God. Almost every verse in this chapter mentions the Bible itself. And again, Bible scholars disagree about how many uh, Hebrew words are used to refer to the Scriptures. As you read through your English translations, here's some of the ones that you're going to come across law, testimony, ways, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, word, promise. All of these words referring back to God's word. So it's the longest chapter in the Bible, lots of references to the Bible, and it's a piece of poetry. The Hebrews loved acrostic poetry, and I know this is kind of a mouthful, but it's worth noting because this is a remarkable poem. It's an acrostic psalm. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 sections in Psalm 119. Each section has eight verses, and each verse in a particular section begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, as you look at the text, many of your translations, if you look at Psalm 119, verse 1 to 8, above those verses, you'll notice a little heading that says Aleph. That's the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And in the original language, Every line, each line in this first stanza, the first word in the first line begins with Aleph all the way through. And then you go down to verse 9 through 16 and we're in the bait section. Every line begins with a word that begins with the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, bait, and all the way through it goes through the Hebrew alphabet. And so they liked acrostic poetry, and this is one of the biggest, most impressive examples of them sort of laying out the the psalm according to an acrostic pattern. Interesting that it's an anonymous psalm. There's no heading that says who wrote it, and there's plenty of debate about who actually is behind it. Here's a few of the suggestions one is that David wrote it and some scholars say David wrote this psalm to teach his son Solomon the Hebrew alphabet and as a byproduct teach him about the Bible that's one theory that David wrote it to teach Solomon the alphabet and about the scriptures just a theory another theory is that Ezra wrote it Ezra you may remember was one of the priests who brought people back from the exile, back to the promised land. And his job, Ezra 710, was to study the law of Israel and to do it and to teach his statutes in Israel. And some people say, as Ezra came back with all these exiles that had been 70 years, many of these people knew nothing about the law of God. Ezra wrote this psalm to sort of explain to them what he was going to teach them about. To teach them about the Bible before he taught them. The Bible. So there's another theory. And then my personal favorite, I have no reason to think that it's true, but my personal favorite theory is that during the exile, 176 Jewish uh, scribes were tasked with writing a psalm together. And they said, We're going to send you out. You each get to write one verse. And they all came back with their one verse and they mashed them all together. And then you have Psalm 1. One, uh, 119. So maybe you, you like that theory. The honest answer is we have no idea who wrote it, but it's clear what it's about, and it's clear why it's important to our life. So this morning, we're going to look at the first 48 verses, and we're going to break it down into the six different stanzas. And like I said, we're not camping out in each section. We're just going to hit one big truth, one unique truth in each of the sections that we cover this morning. So open your Bible, find Psalm 119, and you follow along as I read verse one. having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are, are my delight. They are my counselor's. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise." Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. I will meditate on your statutes. Let's pray together. Father, as we read your word and as we read what the Bible says about itself, as we read what Psalm 119 says about your law and your testimonies and your precepts and your ways, your commandments, your truth, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear what your word has to say. We ask that you would change our hearts where we need to be changed, that you would grant us repentance even this morning. Father, we pray for those who are here who have never experienced salvation through Jesus Christ, and we pray that this morning as we look at this passage that their hearts would be opened to their need for Christ and for the salvation that he has provided for sinners like ourselves. Father, we love you. We ask for your wisdom and your guidance as we study this morning, and we pray for it in Jesus' name, amen. In the 17th century, there was a guy named George Wishart, and he was the bishop of Edinburgh. So he was over in Scotland, and he was a bishop, and depending on who you read, he was either a really patriotic Scottish man or he was not a very nice bishop at all but however you slice it he ended up getting charged with treason him and one of his buddies they got charged with treason and they get hauled before this court and they're having the proceedings and the arguments and Wishart realizes it's not looking good. They've charged him. They're going to convict him. So he begins to to stall because the thing about Wishart is he was connected with people in high places. He knew folks who could grant him a pardon if he only stalled long enough. And I know that in our minds, we think, well, why didn't you text him? Why didn't you email him? Why didn't you call him? Well, it didn't work that way back then. So he's sort of stalling out these proceedings because he knows if he gets convicted of treason on the other end of that conviction, he's going to die. So he's stalling, he's stalling, he's stalling. And they reach the, the verdict or the conclusion and they say, you're guilty of treason. It's time to kill you. And the pardon has not come yet. And so he has one last trick up his sleeve. And the last trick up his sleeve is he says, I'm going to invoke the custom that allows a condemned man to have a psalm sung before his execution. And everybody sort of rolls their eyes and says, Oh, good grief. Are you serious? Can we just get it over with? And he says, No, I'm invoking my right. You got to sing a psalm. And they say, Okay, which psalm do you want to sing? He did not pick Psalm 117, two verses. He picked Psalm 119, to which everyone else probably groaned and rolled their eyes and said, oh, you have got to be kidding me. This guy, what a piece of work. So they start to sing it. And you can believe this or not believe it, but as the story goes, they're about two-thirds through Psalm 119, and in through the back door walks the pardon. And they say, we know you convicted him, but here's a word from the next higher-up man on the food chain, you got to let him go. And he walked right out of there as they finished Psalm 119. Now... Psalm 119 may, at some point in your life, buy you a little bit of time. It may save you from execution. It might get you out of a treason conviction. I doubt it. It's still useful for your life. And the truths that you see in Psalm 119 are still truths that you need to understand, not just as sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card when you're really in a pickle, but as something that has the power to change who you are. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. And like I said, there's 176 verses. We could just go verse by verse, talk about everything that Psalm 119 says about the Word of God. It would take a very, very long time. We're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to take it section by section. And as I've looked at these sections, I've tried to compare them to each other. So we've looked all the way to the end of this and tried to say, what's unique in this section? What stands out as a special emphasis in these particular eight verses that maybe isn't emphasized as much In other places in Psalm 119. And so I'm going to give you some of these truths, and I've got six of them for you this morning. Here's the first one. God's Word brings true happiness. True happiness. I agree with the philosopher Blaise Pascal who said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. All people seek happiness. I believe that. I believe that God created us with this desire to find and to seek and to pursue happiness and contentment and a rightness within ourselves. But I also believe the Bible when it says you and I look in a, a million different places for the happiness that we can only find in God and in His Word. We look in a million different places where we're never going to be able to find true happiness, I've shared the quote with you from C.S. Lewis where he says, you and I, were made to be happy. We're made to seek happiness. But the problem is, and this is my paraphrase, we're like an ignorant child in the slum eating a pie made of mud looking for happiness because we can't imagine how great it would be to take a vacation at the beach. Instead of something that would truly make us happy, we just settle for something far less. And Psalm 119 begins with this idea of finding true happiness, true blessedness, if you want to use the word in that sense. Look what he says in Psalm 119, one and 2, the very beginning, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Psalm 119 begins exactly where Psalm 1 began. I know that it's been a few months since we talked about Psalm 1. Corey preached that sermon as we kicked off this series. But hold your spot in Psalm 119 and just flip back to the left and look at Psalm 1. It begins with an almost identical verse. It's certainly talking about the same thing. Psalm 1, 1 to 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The book of Psalms begins in the same place that Psalm 119 begins and they're both saying something very simple to you, very basic, but something that we are so quick to forget. If you're looking for true happiness, true contentment, true fulfillment, real blessing, you can listen to the world and you can go on some never-ending, self-driven quest for purpose and meaning and happiness... Or you can come to God, the one true God, as he is revealed in his word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, nor stands in the way of sinners. But blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord. Blessed is the one who walks in the law of the Lord, Psalm 119.1, who keeps his testimonies. True happiness comes from God's word. The world will tell you to look for it in a million different places in a million different people, in a million different ways. And Psalm 119 is just like a compass pointing to true north saying, this is where you find it. You don't have to search. You don't have to to look. You don't have to question it. This is where you find it. You find happiness through knowing God through his word. Secondly, God's word promotes holiness. God's word promotes holiness. There's a lot of popular preachers these days who talk a lot about being real, being authentic, uh, being raw, being honest. And they just sort of lay all their mess out on the table and just say, I'm a mess, you're a mess, we're all a mess. Let's have a big happy hug and agree that we're all a mess. Let's be honest. I'm all for being honest. But let's also come around and say, if we're truly committed to God's Word, it is going to produce holiness in our lives. You don't have to stay a mess. Listen to what Psalm 119 says in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? Well, you guard it according to the word. Simple. Verse 11. I've stored up your word in my heart. Why? To what end? Why would you do this? So that I might not sin against you. How many of you guys ever eaten at a Cracker Barrel? You guys like Cracker Barrel? We don't have one in Odessa, but there's one down the road. My wife loves Cracker Barrel. You go to Cracker Barrel, you walk in, you got to walk through the mall of junk first, just all the stuff. You walk through there, you get into the restaurant, and I don't know if you've ever noticed, but like the ceiling of Cracker Barrel is decorated with old farm tools, right? Just all this stuff up in the ceiling, some of it's on the walls. I'm a city guy, I am not a farm guy, and so I walk into Cracker Barrel, and I'm like, oh, you got some nice junk up on the ceiling, I like that. Just old wood and stuff with metal on the end, and that's fantastic. When we lived in Kentucky, I had a a friend, he was a few years older than me, his name was Alvin Wright, and he was an old farmer from the hills, and he would say the hollers of Kentucky. And Alvin's favorite place to eat, he was one of the deacons at our church, he loved to eat at Cracker Barrel. So we'd get in the car, we'd drive down to Shelbyville, we'd go eat at Cracker Barrel, And we'd sit there, we'd talk about all sorts of things, but what Alvin liked to do, Mr. Old Farmer, is look up at the ceiling and say, hey, Brother Landon, you know what that is? I have no idea what that is, but I bet you're about to tell me what it is. That's a log roller. You know what you do with that? Well, I can make a guess at what you do with a log roller. You ever used one of those? No, I have never used a log roller. I'm from West Texas. We don't have a lot of logs to roll. We'd sit there and he'd look up there and he'd tell me all these things. That's ice grabbers and log rollers and this and that and the other and all these things. And his point in telling me all these things was to say if you live on a farm, you've got to use the right tool for the right job. You don't want to try to roll logs with ice clamps. And you don't want to try to carry ice with a log roller you got to use the right tool. Now, some of you say, I still don't get it. I'm not a farmer. I don't understand. Some of you guys like video games. I don't like video games a whole lot, but a little bit. How many of you have ever played this video game? This is the best video game ever of all time, original Nintendo. You're like, what kind of Nintendo is that? That's just Nintendo. It doesn't have anything after it, just plain Nintendo. And There's a game called The Legend of Zelda. How many of you have played this game? It's a fantastic game. You guys are my favorite people. Love you guys. And you get in Zelda, and you go around, and you ought to look up the graphics. It's so terrible. It looks pathetic. You get in there, and you walk around this map, and you collect items. You collect weapons, and you blow up things in the rock, and you get a weapon here, and you beat this level, and you get a weapon. there. You get all these different weapons, and you got to use these weapons to beat different bad guys in the game. And here's the thing. When you get to the end of the game, if you want to kill Ganon, you can't start chucking your boomerang at him. I mean, you can chuck the boomerang at him all day long and nothing's ever going to happen. You've got to use the silver arrow if you want to kill Gannon. You have to use the right tool for the right job. So maybe you like farming, maybe you like video games, maybe you don't like either, but you're starting to get the point. Listen, if you want to kill sin in your life, there is only one way to do it. And it's by a commitment to God's word. That's what Psalm 119 is saying. You look at your life and you say, I've got all this stuff in my life that I feel bad about and guilty about and I know it's not right and I need to get this junk out. There's only one way you're going to get it out. It's by being committed to God's word. Verse nine, how can you keep your way pure? By guarding it according to God's word. Why would you want to hide God's word in your heart, store it up in your heart, memorize it in your heart so that you don't sin against God? If you're committed to this book, to reading it, to thinking about it, to meditating on it, it will, over time, begin to root up and root out the sin in your life. Look at verse 11, memorizing it, storing it in your heart. Look at verse 15. I meditate on your precepts. Not only am I going to memorize it and be able to spit it back out to you, but I'm going to think about it. I'm going to run it through my brain during the day. I'm going to mull it over. Look at verse 10. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. You're praying to God, asking him, I don't want to wander from your commandments, but I know myself. Don't let me do it. Keep me close to your commandments. A commitment to God's word will always produce holiness in your life. Number three, God's word offers trustworthy guidance. This is the, the Gimel section of Psalm Psalm 119. I just want you to see how he describes himself in Psalm 119, verse 19. It says, I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. A sojourner is somebody who's just passing through. They are not in the place where they really feel at home. They're not in a place where they really feel like they belong or they're comfortable. They're just passing through. They're not with their people. They're just passing through. And the author of Psalm 119 says, I am a sojourner on earth. I don't belong here. I belong for, to another place, to another kingdom. This is not my home. I'm not attached to things here. I'm not overly connected to things here because I realize this is not all there is to life. There's something else. There's another place And I'm just a sojourner here. And he says, because I don't belong here, I need you not to hide your commandments from me. Which is a a Hebrew way of saying, I need you to teach them to me. I need you to show them to me. I need you to help me understand your word because I am in a place where I don't belong. I need guidance. And I need direction. The Bible will give you that. It will provide guidance for your life. It absolutely will not answer every question that you ask or give you a a clear path on every decision that you have to make, but it will give you principles and it will give you truths that are unchanging and perfect and righteous, and you can set your life according to those things, and it's sound guidance. Now, I want to give you one disclaimer the Bible is not just a book about guidance. There's a little acronym I see on Facebook shared every now and then. I would be willing to bet, don't raise your hand because we won't single you out. I'd be willing to bet at least five of you have this written in your Bible somewhere. It's a little acronym, B-I-B-L-E, Bible, B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Don't raise your hand if you have that written in your Bible. And I'm not mad at you. You don't have to scratch it out. You don't have to rip that page out. I'm just telling you, when I see that, it just goes all over me. And I think, it's just, you're cheapening the Bible when you call it that. When you call this book Basic Instructions Before You Leave the Earth. In my mind, do you want to know what I honestly think of when I hear that? I think of like a spiritualized set of Lego instructions, Like, you just follow these steps, step one, step two, you do this, you do that, and then you're going to die and you're going to leave this earth, and it's good, you follow the steps. I just want you to understand, this is true, God's word offers trustworthy guidance, but this is not like an almanac for making decisions that you just flip through and pull a verse here or there, and you sort of get a spiritualized blessing for whatever decision you want to make in your life. This is not just a book about how to live your life. Most basically, this is not a set of instructions, it's a story. and It's a story how you and I have made a total mess of our life. It is most certainly not a story about how we fix it on our own by following step one, then two, then three, then four. But it's a story about how the holy God went to the greatest lengths to fix what we messed up. It's a story about how God himself has lived with his people, dwelt with his people. Can I use the word from Psalm 119? Sojourned with his people to walk among us and to live a life of obedience for us and to die our death on the cross and to promise to come back for us one day. And when you think about this book, the Bible, as just sort of little pithy little sayings, basic instructions, little, little helps that are gonna get you through life or through the next day, you take this grand story about what God has done for you through Christ and you turn it into like Aesop's fable. There's an old version and a new version. Just some life pointers to guide you in what you need to do in life so listen to me psalm 119 is clear and i don't want to diminish psalm 119 god's word offers trustworthy guidance it's a, a lamp for us it's a light for us we're going to get to those verses but most basically it's a story about what god has done for us through christ does it offer guidance it does But it doesn't offer guidance for how you can be a better person or a nicer person or a person who gets to go to heaven someday. It's a story about how God has made it possible for sinful people like us to spend eternity in his presence. So it offers guidance. Number four, it gives strength. God's word gives strength. This is the Dalit section. Look at verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. This book will strengthen you. It will give you strength. Unexplainable strength. Supernatural strength. Not to lift heavy objects. Not to run really fast. But to endure situations that you never thought you would be able to endure. Don't believe the lie where People sort of talk about their quiet time or their Bible reading and they say, oh, I knew this was going to be a bad day. I skipped my quiet time this morning. Oh, I knew this was going to be a rough day. I didn't read my Bible this morning or say my prayers this morning. Just being totally honest with you, I've had plenty of great days where I didn't read my Bible in the morning. And I've had pretty lousy days where I did read it in the morning. There's no connection there. It's not like God thumping you on the head to say, hey, you didn't read your Bible this morning. I'm going to give you a bad day. You're going to get stuck at that red light and then you're going to lock your keys in the car and then your co-worker's going to say something snarky and then something's going to happen. Somebody's going to post something on Facebook that's going to make you so mad and then you're going to burn dinner. That's what you get for not reading your Bible this morning. (laughs) Better read it tomorrow. That's not the point. God's word will not change what happens to you. God's word will change you. And when you commit yourself to reading it, and memorizing it, and meditating on it, and living it, it will change you. And you'll find yourself someday, are you ready for this, with your soul clinging to the dust. And you'll find yourself someday where your soul is melting away from sorrow. And God's word will strengthen you. And you'll make it through it. Not on your own power, but on God's power. God's word will give you strength. Fifth, God's word will give you endurance. Endurance. Look at verse 33. This is the hey section. Verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Teach me your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. It's pretty clear when you read Jesus' parable about the soils that he's not at all interested in the seed that falls among the rocky soil. And that seed, you may remember, in the rocky soil, it springs up very quickly and it looks promising, but it had no root, had no depth. And when the sun came out, it was scorched and it just withered and it died. It's of no value to anybody. And it's clear from that parable that Jesus is not interested in those who are like the seed that was sown among the thorns, where it grows up quickly and it begins to to grow and show signs of life, but then the cares of this world and the things of this world and just this world begins to just sort of smother it out and choke it out and it dies. He's not interested in that. And the psalmist isn't interested in that either. That's why he says in verse 33, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. God didn't just give us his word so that you could make some spiritual decision and pray a prayer and begin something. He gave you his word so that you could finish and that he could finish the good work that he begins in us. And can I just be real honest with you? In the United States of America, we have this totally backward in our churches. In Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches, we have it totally backward, Our entire focus, you just look at the way we program, the way we have events, and I don't mean we, Emmanuel, I just mean we corporately, Americans, Baptists, us, we're part of that mess. You look at the way we do things in our churches, it's all designed to get people to a point of sort of decision or commitment or prayer, and then we celebrate, and then we feel like we're done. That's not the point. It's not the point of the Great Commission. The, the, the Great Commission is not a call for us to go out and to convince people that we're right and they're wrong. The point of the Great Commission is to make disciples, people who are actively following Jesus. Listen, when we have young people, old people, middle-aged people, any people get up in that baptistry and make a profession of faith and they say, I want to follow Jesus, we celebrate, we clap, we say, this is a great day. But we also say to them, and we say to their parents and their families and everyone else, now you got to finish you started. This is not the end of anything. This is not, oh, now you got baptized, breathe a sigh of relief, it's all over now. It's the beginning, and now you endure to the end. And the psalmist recognizes that. He doesn't want to be a spiritual flash in the pan, excited for Jesus today, forgetting about him tomorrow. And so he prays, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep them to the end. God's word will give you endurance. Lastly, number six, God's word should impact every area of your life. That includes your emotions, that includes your words, and that includes your actions. Every area of your life. Look at verse 47. It talks about his emotions. I find my delight in your commandments. Every time in the book of Psalms you read that word delight, you ought to think he's talking about emotions. He's talking about how he feels. And he's saying, I delight in your word. I find delight and joy and happiness and excitement in your word. Look what he says in verse 46. He talks about his words. I will speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. I'll open my mouth and tell people what it says. Your word is going to change the way that I talk. Verse 44 I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Talking about his actions. I'm going to obey it. I'm going to do it. I'm not just going to read it. It's not just going to be in one ear out the other, but I'm going to do it. It's going to change my emotions, the way I feel. It's going to change the words that come out of my mouth. It's going to change the things that I do and the things that I don't do. So, simple question. We say God's word should impact every area of your life. Has it? In your life all the time every part of your life every nook and cranny every emotion that you feel every thought that you think every word that you say everything that you do or don't do has the word of God had that sort of authority to guide you at every step along the way in your life and to change you and to impact you in that way don't answer I'll answer for all of us no it hasn't we feel things we shouldn't feel And we think things we shouldn't think. And we say things we shouldn't say and we do things that we shouldn't do. And, that wasn't bad enough, we don't feel things we should feel. And we don't think things we should think. And we don't say things we should say. And we don't do things that we should do. It hasn't. So, I'll just remind you of this as we wrap up. You're going to read Psalm 119 from beginning to end. You're not going to read the name Jesus in it. You're not going to read the word Messiah in it, but it's really all about him. You're not going to find Jesus in Psalm 119, but Jesus is the only one who has lived Psalm 119. He is the only one who has walked on this earth and allowed the word of God to govern all of his emotions and all of his thoughts and all of his words and all of his deeds, all of them all the time. And because he did that, because he lived a life, not just a sinless life, but a life of perfect righteousness, he was fit to take your place on the cross and to take the punishment that you deserved on the cross and to die your death on the cross. So as you read through this psalm, if you're looking for Jesus between the lines, you're not necessarily going to find any direct prophecies or predictions of who Jesus is or what he's going to be like. But you look back on it with our perspective and you say, you know, I haven't done what Psalm 119 is talking about. Praise the Lord that Jesus did. Praise the Lord that he obeyed for me and he died for me. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, what I would say to you is this. Look at Psalm 119 this morning over the next few weeks and try to live this out. Try to put it into practice. Try to listen to what the Bible says about itself. With the power of the Spirit who lives in you, by God's grace, strive to live out Psalm 119. Just remember, you haven't done it perfect and you're not going to do it perfect. And your security in in your salvation is not how good can you live out Psalm 119 as the preacher explained it. Your security is in Jesus has done this for me so that by his grace I can turn around and learn how to do it in my life. That's your security. Not in your ability to obey, but in what Jesus has done for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you sit here this morning and you say, I've been in church, I kind of know some things about the Bible, but I don't know that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you would say, you know, I started at some point, I prayed a prayer, I sort of did a thing, maybe I got baptized, but I certainly haven't been enduring to the end. I don't think that I'm a follower of Jesus If that's you, I say to you, don't try to leave with a long list of 176 more things you need to do to get to heaven someday. Don't take that burden out of this room of saying, okay, here we go, 176 more things. I better get busy doing this stuff or God is going to be mad at me. But acknowledge the the obvious reality. I have not done this. And I'm not going to be able to do it. And my only hope is that somebody did it for me and that somebody paid the penalty for the things that I have done and haven't done. And find your hope and find your security in Christ. Psalm 119 had a pretty significant impact on the life of George Wishart. Bought him a few more years on this earth. Spared him from an untimely execution. My prayer this morning and over the next few weeks is that Psalm 119 has a much, much bigger impact on your life. Not just adding a few years on this earth where we're sojourners, but adding to you true life and eternal life. Let me pray for you. Father, we're grateful for your word and we're grateful for Psalm 119. It's a, an amazing chapter. Whoever wrote it doesn't matter because we believe that your spirit inspired it and we believe that it's true. We pray for wisdom and discernment to apply it to our life. We pray that we would come to this revelation of who you are with humility and with joy and with gladness and with reverence, with seriousness. Father, we pray that your word would change us. And Father, we especially pray for those who are in the room who are not followers of Jesus and we pray that your word would change them this morning, that they would see their sin for what it is and that they would see Jesus for who he is and that they would run to him in faith. Father, we love you and as we sing to you, we pray that you would receive our worship and we ask and we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.